Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, days are filled. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. Hi everyone. I am so blessed to live a life in which I somehow end up getting to know the most remarkable and fascinating people. I met Mike as a result of a South African rehabilitation centre seeing a gap in the market in terms of addiction treatment for people for whom engagement in chemsex had become unmanageable. David, the owner of Twin Rivers Rehab in Plettenberg Bay, contacted me and asked if I would be interested in running a chemsex program for Twin Rivers. Obviously, due to my involvement with Sex Addicts Anonymous and co-facilitating Patrick Kahn's sex addiction-based treatment groups, he felt I would be a perfect fit. Part of the process of getting this group at Twin Rivers up and running was for me to learn more about chemsex. So, in steps chemsex specialist and gay men's addiction counsellor Mike Power from London. Having worked in London in gay men's health clinics and running a chemsex program at a treatment centre in Thailand, Mike was the perfect master for me to learn from. Mike and I got along really well. I sensed a deep-seated sense of spirit in him and wanted to know what this is about. So I asked him to chat to us, and here he is. Mike can be found on his website, www.gaymensaddiction-chemsexcounseling.co.uk or email him on mikepowercounseling at gmail.com. This podcast is supported by Orangutans in the Field, the podcast where Marva and I talk about life stuff, how it impacts our mental health, and how we deal with it. Catch this unedited, raw, sometimes hard-hitting, and always blatantly honest podcast on Anchor FM or Iono FM. Please also look out for information on my book, Life and Non, a 12-step guide to life for non-addicts. You can find it by following the link from the right of my homepage which is www.freddy.org.za. It costs 300 rand without postage. Order from me in my shop at www.freddyshop.co.za. Freddy is spelled with an I-E in both these cases. This is Mike's story. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. So, Mike, welcome to Lead Me in the Field, a podcast where we talk about spirit, spiritual journeys. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, thank you. It's Friday, so it's always a good day, right? Yes, it is. And what's the time where you are? It is two o'clock. Okay, uh, so ten, right, ten past, ten past two, ten okay, past two. So you're an hour be- behind us. So, do you work on Friday afternoons? Friday mornings, uh, fr- okay. Friday afternoons so it's pretty much free for me oh honestly. lovely good for you i still have two sessions after this so oh, um, yeah oh <laughs> yeah yeah of which one is really nice and one is really difficult but anyway it, i i have a really long weekend i've really long weekends which i just love you know i really don't have to start thinking about working till tuesdays so. oh my word and you're also looking terribly tanned from the last time i saw you are you spending lots of time in the sun Bed, <laughs> some beds. <laughs> oh, thank God you're not dealing with vanity. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> and, and and a little bit of fake tan goes on there in between me having my hood. <laughs> you know. So do you just not like going into the sun? We just don't get much sun here, Freddie. Okay. I mean, 
Gosh, if you look out this window, this is probably like a winter's day in South Africa. It's it's cloudy. It's it's windy. Uh, last week we had torrential rain. Um, so don't get it and when we do get it it's never really comfortable in a place like London because London is designed to keep the heat in not to keep the heat out so okay. if we 27 degrees it feels like 30 degrees okay are you in London yeah yeah in the center okay. of London oh wow um, awesome yeah near the city Canary cool. Wharf are you born and bred London or we no, no. I I grew up in the Midlands. Uh, oh, in a, oh, lovely. That's apparently beautiful. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's a place. It's a place called Stoke on Trent. Um, yeah, I mean, it was okay. I mean, it was quite a nice place for a child to grow up. To be honest, yeah, it was okay. I mean, it was countryside and by the canals and fields, so it was okay. Yeah. Sounds quite nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> catching catching frogs in the canals and fishing and doing all those butch things that people that little boys are supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, that, that that wasn't me. <laughs> so so not me. <laughs> that wasn't me. I was I was busy playing with my sister's dolls. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I definitely wasn't doing the butch stuff. Yeah, uh, that definitely resonates with me as well. So, did you grow up with religion in the house? Or yeah. sense of spirituality? Yeah. Do you come from religious bank of Bank of England? <laughs> very. I, I I come from a very very um, religious background. Um, Roman Catholic. Okay. Um, my grandfather was American, and he was fiercely Roman Catholic. Um, my my dad was from Southern Ireland and came from a family of eighteen and oh. stayed. With Hence, why there was eighteen oh, in the family, Catholic, yeah. no contraception, etc., <laughs> uh, etc. Et so, my mum, not so much. She is religious from a perspective that she would pray, but my mum was quite lazy. Like she would never, she would make us go to church, but she wouldn't go to church. <laughs> um, so, me and my sisters used to go to church, um, and my mum used to give us like ten pence. Um, and then we used to keep the 10 pence and take a button off our shirt and put the button in the collection box, 10 pence, and buy sweets. <laughs> oh, your father <laughs> highly spaved, young man. You're straight to hell. Don't even go. Uh, I, I know. <laughs> I, I know. But back, back in those days, like in, in the Roman Catholic Church, it was all in Latin. So I'm, I'm talking about 1970s, so 1975. Um, up to about 1979. So I didn't have a clue what they were talking about. And me and my sisters, we used to just sit at the back of the church and giggle and talk. And then one day oh. my father took us by our ears and dragged us around to the convents, uh, to the nuns, um, and said, sort these children out and put God into them. Um, so we had to then... Uh, do extra kind of curriculum kind of classes at the convents. So I'd go to normal school, uh, primary school in the day. Then after primary school, I would go up to the convents and have my catechism lessons and all oh, that. So, did. yeah, it was it was heavy. It, it was it was really quite heavy. Um, and then something that I really struggled with as I got older as a gay man, obviously, mm-hmm. um, because I was kind of I. I 
a, a lot of the ideologies of the Roman Catholic religion had been ingrained in me. And my my grandfather was also very, um, very strict. Like I wasn't ever allowed to kind of hug or um, kiss men in the family. I could hug and kiss the females in the family, but I could never hug the men. So um, I had to shake hands with my grandfather and shake hands with my father. Oh, my word. You, you can imagine, you know, I, I was taught from a very young age that, you know, a man has to be a man and men don't kiss and, mm-hmm. you know, do that. You're, you're a wuss, so you're buff, as my, as my grandfather used to say. So, yeah, it made it quite challenging in terms of my sexuality growing up in such a fundamental kind of religious household, yeah. Yeah. So it sounds as if <laughs> what, 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 what was happening is kind of the, the, the religion was kind of pounded into your neural pathways. You know, by, by constantly repeating, you will start believing. And, and did, it, did it work for a while? Or, or, or was it just kind of, no, I don't get it? Or, 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 yeah. to, or, or what, what was your attitude? How did it work for you? As a very young boy, believe it or not, and this is quite funny, <laughs> Um, I actually did want to be a priest um, um, for for a few years in my very early childhood, and that was before I had any real concept of kind of what my sexuality was. Oh. And I'm not sure why I clung on to kind of religion, but you know, grow, growing up in quite um, let's just say hopeless environment, I, I think it was just kind of something to kind of connect with, uh, really. As, as a young child. Um, so, yeah, at one stage I did want to be a priest. Um, okay. was kind of going to go and do that. <laughs> oh, wow. You reminded me of a friend of mine that, that um, he, in, in Afrikaans church, we called him Dominis. So he was a, 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 a preacher, um, but he's also gay. And he, he always joked and said, what he loved the most about being a, a Dominis was when he walked into the church, then he had to turn left to, 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 to turn to the pulpit. But when he made that turn, he made extra flesh so that the, the cloak <laughs> kind, of, <laughs> kind of swing with grace. <laughs> so, so, so I know why you wanted to become a priest for, for all those fabulous outfits that they wore. <laughs> I mean, interestingly enough, because, you know, everything in my childhood was, everything I did and went to, I went to a Church of England school, but I was in Cubs, you know, Cubs and Scouts, um, oh. which was... It was called uh, St. Dominic's Second Division, which was like, you know, the Catholic part yes. of the Cubs and Scouts. And, you know, I went to the convents. Um, pretty much the convent was a big part of my life for many years with the nuns as well. Um, so, yeah, definitely got indoctrin- indoctrinated yeah. with that and brainwashed. But I think that's what religion does anyway. It is a form of brainwashing, right? Mm. Um, so what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is that you moved away from that at some stage? It was really, I mean, I think when, where it became very complicated for me was when I started to acknowledge my sexuality and started to act on yep. my sexuality. Um, and that caused a bit of an existential crisis for, for mm. me, really, because I had this ingrained belief of my religion, and you know, to be gay was bad, which fundamentally meant I was bad. Absolutely. I am um, unacceptable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that that was really, really tough 
for me and also then growing up in that very kind of toxic masculinity kind of household where I had to shake hands you know I had religion on one side but this kind of men do not kiss men on the other side of, of the fence so what would happen when I started to explore my sexuality um you know as a young person when your hormones are rife you know it's really kind of um it, it did create a lot of kind of guilt and a lot of shame um for, for mm. me um so much that i would actually go and have sexual intimacy with somebody and then go sit in the church and cry about it <laughs> afterwards pray you know mm. um i could never really understand why me you know why me um so so it was tough and then i the next phase of that was i totally rebelled against it I, I just went the other end of the spectrum. Um, hated it, didn't agree with it, rubbish. You know, if that was true, then we wouldn't exist. Yeah. Um, and kind of rejoiced my sexuality as opposed to kind of went into the cycle of shame about it. Yeah. No, I, I became, your, your story resonates so deeply with me. But how old are you, Mike? Uh, 50. Okay, cool. So I'm four years your senior. So, um, so yeah, so, so very much the, the same time. So uh, your story so deeply resonates with me. I so get that guilt and shame. And uh, I remember the deals I made for myself, kind of, if you don't, if you, if you manage not to look at men for a week, then you can get some reward. And, oh, my word, it was absolutely horrific. The guilt and the shame, terrible. So what happened for you after school? Where did you, where did you go? Varsity? Um, Military service, uh, work? <laughs> I, I, I left home very young, um, at 16. Um, I, I left school with, yeah, no, no education at, at all. Um, oh, wow. I really did feel, as, as a young person, very suffocated by my environment. Um, and and not, not just because of religion, um, growing up in a small town, um, I always felt very different and, and it wasn't specifically around my sexuality that I felt different. You know, um, the way I, the way I would think was different. I, I yeah. could, you know, I, I used to think a lot more outside the box. I didn't mm-hmm. really have that mentality. So I just wanted to kind of get away from there as soon as I legally could, to yeah. be honest. And that's what I kind of did. <laughs> as soon as you know, I, I jumped on a train and moved to moved to London um, and got myself a job as a trainee chef. Oh wow. Uh, in in London. Yeah. Okay. And did you get involved in the culinary culinary world? Or did was it a, 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 a just a just a, a, a kind of foot into the door of earning a salary? Yeah, it, it was kind of um, I mean, I did. I did enjoy it because I was working kind of in kitchens um, since the age of 14. My nan was a chef and I used to spend okay. a lot of time with her and um, I used to love her cooking. So I definitely enjoyed kind of uh, the, the cooking aspects of it, but it wasn't something that I stayed in for that long. So to be honest, I, I moved on pretty quickly a few years after I kind of left being a chef. Um and then embarked on just a really colourful life. <laughs> you 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 left the gay you left the gay flag, did you? 
colourful. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was difficult, you know, because we we are similar ages, right? So I I I came out. I, I moved to London in 1987 and at 16. That was also just as the AIDS epidemic was was peaking. Mm. Uh, yeah. Um, as as well. So came into a, a community that was really, really interesting. And of course, you know, me, myself, you know, I had a very kind of um, James Dean attitude, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's like motion, when, when you go kind of racing in a car, uh, it's not going to happen to me. Yeah. But they, they were very, very strange times in London anyway. Um, I can imagine quite challenging to come out into as well. Mm. Wow, really, really interesting. I, I, I kind of forget about that, that phase of my own journey. Is it, it feels so, so, so long ago. And, and, and we, we, we've lived with AIDS and reality of it for so long that, that it just feels like, shit, I hope, Sorry, no, not interrupting myself. I hope that's not how COVID's going to be, that in 30 years we're still going to talk about the, the <laughs> COVID being, being present. So, Mike, now you, you, you work for yourself as a, what will you call yourself? A, a, a counsellor? Uh, yeah, addiction, addiction counsellor. Okay. Addiction counsellor, yeah. Take us a bit through, through that journey, if you don't mind. How, how, how did you get to that? Because... Maybe it's now the time to mention to people that you and I, you and I know each other through chemsex. <laughs> yes, yes. So in the most innocent way possible, we know each other through. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. No, 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 not in the experiential. Right? <laughs> exactly. It's um, a beautiful way which we'll get to. <laughs> yeah, through supporting each other and supporting others and coming out to that lifestyle. Absolutely. Yeah. It was never planned. So, you know, like, like I said, you know, my life was very colourful and that's about as much as I'll say about it. It was just colourful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at times really nice, you know, it took me around the world and um, I did some really exciting things that maybe I would not have done if I wasn't living in that colourful yeah. world. However, at the tail end of that very colourful world came my own um, ad- addiction. Um to crystal meth, um, which started for me in Australia and the United States. At that point in time in the UK, people were not doing crystal meth. Okay. Um, they they were still doing like cocaine, you know, ecstasy. Maybe G was on the equation in the equation then, but um, so but I started doing it in Los Angeles and, and New York and in Sydney and, and it kind of escalated from there um, and started to use intravenously in, in Sydney because it's quite big uh, over there um, and then kind of brought that back to London um, to the point where I actually got I started my journey of recovery in Los Angeles so okay um, a friend of mine that was already in the 12-step fellowship kind of took me by the ears. <laughs> it's funny how people keep on getting me by the ears, right? First and then. <laughs> then <laughs> um, and, and he was like... Dragged out of, out, out of church by the ears into, into yeah. recovery by the ears. Well, makes sense. Like th- completed the circle. <laughs> it's like, I think you need to go to a meeting. So he started kind of 
taking me to meetings, uh, which kind of planted the seed. Uh, but it was several years before the penny actually dropped and I actually got the properly. Um, so I spent a good few years trying, um, going to meetings, getting periods of abstinence, then kind of lapsing and, and relapsing. I went to residential treatments in, in Australia and then came back to London at the end of that. And that's when the penny kind of dropped. You know, I, I, I kind of found um, recovery. and Awesome. Um, you know, the rock bottoms got so severe that there was really no choice but to stop, really, if I wanted to stay alive. So, but during that time, like, crystal meth was still not in London, uh, but there was a few friends of mine. What, what year are we talking about now? We would be talking about probably 2010, 2010, oh. 12, maybe. Um, so that, that, that was when meth sort of started coming into South Africa. Yeah. So, yeah. so because that's also something we didn't know really yet. Um, before I came into recovery, I came in in 2009. So, so it, it was also very new and very experimental at that stage. So, um, yeah, Crystal Meth was just starting to come into the, the community in, in London. But at the same time when that was coming in, um, I actually had three friends that passed away um, oh. in, in Los Angeles in the same year. Yeah. Um, all three of them were in their 30s and all three of them died of heart attacks and Ooh. all three were heavy crystal meth stroke steroid users. Um, so obviously the combination of trying to steroid juice and methamphetamine use, mm. you know, steroids enlarge the heart because it's a muscle and uh, methamphetamine kind of really kind of pushes bumps, the heart. Bumps, bumps, um, yeah. yeah, so... Even though there was no evidence to kind of suggest that, my assumption was that, you know, three guys in the 30s would not normally die of heart attacks, right? Um, and it can't be a coincidence that they were both a problem with methamphetamine and they were also steroid users, quite heavy um, steroid users. So that kind of sparked the activist in me, really, because... Meth wasn't that big in London. I thought, oh my God, I need to save London from this awful joke. <laughs> oh, you go, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm going, to, I'm going to save this city. It's not going to destroy, it's not going to destroy this. So, you know, I started researching and got some people on board. Um, met, met, met a friend of mine who kind of came up with the name um, Chemsex. And we started talking about how we could do some publicity to raise awareness. That, that never materialized, but as a result of that, I started to go to some of the training sessions that they were doing on chemsex, and there's an LGBT drug and alcohol service here in London um, called Antidote, London Friend. I'm sure they won't mind me saying their name. Um, and I started volunteering there, basically. Okay. Um, first making teas and coffees, just talking to people, and then kind of doing some assessments um, and then doing key working, which is kind of like case working, um, using motivational interviewing techniques, et cetera, et cetera. I thought, actually, you know what? I'm kind of okay at this. <laughs> I thought I'm actually okay at this. However, what I didn't have was some real good training. So 
Um, and what became very apparent to me was that even though on the surface we were seeing, you know, substance misuse or alcohol misuse or chemsex or sexual compulsivity, below that we had this melting pot of other stuff going on, trauma, mental health, mm-hmm. and really incredibly vulnerable people. Um, and I thought, my gosh, you know, without me doing some kind of solid training, yeah, I could really do some harm. Um, so I kind of took myself off to university um, for a few years to do addiction, addiction oh, science wow. and counselling um, and, and then kind of qualified really and awesome. just carried on from there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, just for the, read, for the readers, for the listening site, for this, just for the listener's site, tell us what chemsex is. So chemsex, in, in a nutshell, is described as gay, bisexual, or men who have sex with men that use free drugs to facilitate or enhance their sexual experience. And those free drugs are crystal methamphetamine, methadrone, because it, chemsex is an English name, methadrone isn't necessarily um, used in places like the United States, Australia, or even South Africa, but here in London, it was big um, in the chemsex scene, very similar to methamphetamine. Okay. And GHB would were the free drugs, even though other stimulants can actually be put into the equation and put that, but they were the main free, free drugs. Okay. Often in a group sex environment, but not necessarily, um, but group sex is a big, big part of the chemsex scene. You'll find that people have chill out parties, as they call them, or group sex parties. Um, and what would happen? People would just go around to each other's houses and have kind of chill out sex parties and take drugs um, to facilitate and enhance their, their sexual experience. Cool. And that is, is where, where, where we kind of connect because. I got into to, to do the setup where I needed to learn more about it, and you were in a setup where, where, where you were where could, you could teach me more about it. So, so we, we we went onto this this amazing journey, which, in a way, um, was such an eye opener for me. Absolutely. So, tell us a little bit about your. So, right before I go there. So, what I'm hearing is you. You became interested in, in, in the whole chemsex thing very early in your journey. But it was only when you worked in Thailand where you actually really started working with it. Or, or, was, or was that my no, misunderstanding? No, right. I've been working. It, I've been working with it from the outset, to be honest, right. um, even when I was volunteering, because even though the drug and alcohol service was LGBT, so it wasn't a chemsex service, it was a, a drug and alcohol service. Um, but given the nature of the problem, especially here in London, um, 95% of the people that were coming through the door were people that were using those free drugs in a chemtex, chemsex um, context. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you, it was like a war zone, Freddie, seriously, working there. I mean, it was beautiful. The team was, I mean, one of the most beautiful places I've ever worked um but it was like a war zone <laughs> inside i mean we were only open like on a first day evening for two hours and we could have up to 40 50 people come through the door desperately just seeking help um oh my word 
And, and, and what, will, what will that cry for help look like? Because in, 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 in my head, it's not saying that I'm coming here because I want to stop doing this. Mm. <laughs> what, what, exactly. So, exactly. so, so what, what does that cry for help look like then? The, 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 cry, the cry for help is I'm caught into this and I don't know how to stop and I just want to get back to how it used to be. <laughs> that very typical early, early stages of somebody embarking on the recovery, I don't like the consequences mm. and consequences to stop, but I don't necessarily want to stop the drugs full yeah. stop. Um, so often a lot of the work would be, um, there would be, working with where, the, where they're at. First, we would put harm reduction um, in, into place just to make sure that everything they were doing was safe and they were keeping themselves safe and keeping anybody else that was with them safe. So we would provide like safer injecting techniques and things like that. Um, and, you know, G dosage and G diaries and, and, and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So it's not exactly when you when you score from your dealer, they will give you a, a pamphlet on how to safely use the drugs that they're selling. That's that's amazing. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what drug dealers should do. I mean, they exactly. have a responsibility. Also, yeah. they have a responsibility. Um, if they're going to sell it, they they they, they might as well make sure people use it safely because then they 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 keep the client base. Yeah, no, I, I love that idea. I think the only way I knew kind of what a line of coke must look like was from movies. It's kind of, this is mm. kind of the acceptable amount you shop. I didn't know. I would have liked my dealer to say, okay, so this is a gram, you, and from this you do 10 lines. No, I, I would have known. <laughs> this, is, this is the safe way to do this. Yeah. yeah. No, I, 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 I agree because, you know, a, a lot of the deaths that happen drug use in total, whether it's LGBT or not, is usually accidental. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and it does because people are not informed. Um, and not necessarily everybody has to be on the spectrum of an addict to die from a drug. Exactly. A, a recreational user can die yeah. from drug, drug overdoses. Um, so it makes sense that if a person's going to take drugs, they have to take a very informed choice. So they have to have yeah. the information um, first and then make their decisions based on that information. And then they need to suck up the yeah. consequences as they arise. <laughs> Basically. And one thing that you taught me about the chemsex, what shall we call it, craze, that, that is very disturbing is the... the the, the, the unsafeness of, 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 of the sex that takes place, um, as well as the, the, the blood swapping and, and those type of things, which, which are so incredibly unsafe. Um, and, and part of what you did was, 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 was to educate people around those unsafe practices, if I, if I understand mm. correctly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but also to, you know, from from an antidote perspective, you know, what we would do, and still it's very much the way I work now um, in, in the community. You know, if somebody comes to me and, and says, okay, I want to control my drinking or I want to control my, my drug use, you know, I'll say, well, okay, let's, let's try it. Let's try that. Let's see how that works. Yeah. Um, Let's build the evidence to see if, yes. if you can do that. 
However, there needs to be kind of an Angolia that, you know, if, if you're not building the positive evidence for the fact that you can control your drinking or drug using, then you need to reflect and evaluate yeah. on what to do and maybe abstinence would be an option after that because I, I am a really big believer that people have to learn for themselves, right? As, as a therapist, I can say, oh, my gosh, that's terrible. You know, you're definitely an addict. You're going to die if you continue. And they're going to be like, who the hell do you think you are? <laughs> <laughs> so really if they they come to me and say that's what they want to try i say okay well let's mm. let's try and i will support you as much as i possibly can in doing wow. that setting goals and using motivational interview techniques um etc etc but we also need to look at what about if that doesn't work what's the next option yes i hear you very very important part of, of that journey so I'm going to, to take quite a few steps back. So coming into, into the 12 steps and running into the world guard over and over, over as you read the steps, what came up for you and how did you, how did you get past that? I think, you know, for me, my spiritual journey started um, a long time before I encountered um, my own addiction or even, you know, got to a stage of my own recovery and went into fellowship. You know, I, I think going back to the AIDS epidemic, you know, I was confronted with my own mortality. Very oh, yeah. One through, because I'm openly an HIV positive man. Um, I've been for 20 odd years. Wow. Uh, but my first partner um, also passed away from, from that. And that threw up a lot of questions, mm. you know, what is this all about? And also at the age of 23, getting to grips with the reality that my life was probably only going to be until I was about 27 or 28 or 29 or 30. Mm. Um, and needing to process that quite quickly, of course. Um, you know, as something factual because there wasn't the, there wasn't the medication then. It wasn't yeah. really until 1990s that some effective medications started to come into place, like the late 90s. Mm. Uh, people were still dying in 2000. So the mentality back in those days was you make it to five years. If you're lucky, you're going to make it to 10 years. So mm. you could process your own mortality pretty quick. And I also needed to process why my, my gorgeous, beautiful boyfriend was ripped out of my life um, yeah. at such a young, young age. And, and in such a cruel, cruel, ugly way. Because mm. dying of age is not the pretty sight. It's, it's no, no, absolutely, absolutely not. So I started kind of seeking answers. I, I knew, I, I never went back to the Catholic Church um, I knew the answers didn't lie there for me because there was nothing in the narrative in the catechism or, or the Bible that supported me and my sexuality. So I did start to look into Buddhism. Um, I actually started to look into spiritualism as well, wow. as kind of the actual spiritualism as in life after death, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and started looking for those answers. One, so I could find peace with my own mortality, and, and number two, to find some acceptance around um, my, my partner's death. It, it was a painful journey. Mm. Uh, 
it was a painful journey and I definitely didn't come up with any concrete answers <laughs> um, apart from, you know, the, the universe and energy and spirit guides. I did develop a belief in a life after this life. Um, I don't believe this is it. Um, and some divine power, which is in, in the 12 step rooms, they, they do use the word God because yeah. like, Bible, they still use the same historical words. Um, <laughs> but what they've tried to do, which is really nice, is that they, they have tried to kind of change it into a higher power. Um, so I do believe in some sense of divine higher power, but more in an energy, energy form, um, as opposed to a God as, as, as such, um, really. So by, by the time I came into, into the rooms, into the 12-step fellowship rooms, um, I'd already found that acceptance, oh, before, cool. to be honest, and was really able just to see the word for what it was. Okay. Um, God. But it needs to be a God of my understanding. And I, I think what often happens when people come into the rooms, and it's something that we see a lot in our line of work, um, it's like, my gosh, no, uh, no. Um, Just no. Words. Yeah, no, one word. It's a cult. You hear that a lot Absolutely. too. It's a cult. It's a cult. Oh, my God. They're going to brainwash me. <laughs> you know? Um, so, yeah, I, I was, I was, for me, it was easy to accept the word God. Um, I'm a big believer in the power of prayer, even, even though I don't, um, I, I don't prescribe to any religion. I have respect for every religion, actually. I respect them all, uh, mm. but believe one in none of them and just have my own spiritual thing. But, you know, praying is a big part of my practice on a daily basis. Um, I don't think I would ever go to sleep with, without praying. Yeah. Um, I get that. And if I can remember, I do it in the mornings, but definitely at night. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, got, I've got such a set routine in the mornings that it's literally impossible to forget it. God, I'm so strict with. I just love, I just love routine. It makes me feel so safe. <laughs> in this mm -hmm. in this big, bad, unsafe world, my routine is just kind of my little my little safe, safety net that I've created for myself. <laughs> but Mike, this is this is the time that we have, unfortunately. And I I, I want to thank oh, you. Oh, that's wonderful. It's a really, really interesting topic. Thank you. I, I want love to this. Thank you so much for, 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 for sharing your story and, and, and making yourself so vulnerable. Um tell me your where do people find you? If, if there's anybody in London listening to this and thinking, I need to go and see this guy, I've got a problem. Do you have a Facebook page, a website, or something? Yes, it's called Gay Men's Addiction, Gay Men's Addiction Counseling.co.uk. Um, but if you if you do a search for Mike Power, uh, Gay Men's Addiction Counseling, it'll come up on Google. Um, awesome. So it should be easy to find. Fantastic. Um, Good. Um, send, me, send me an email and I'll get back to you. I'm going to send it. I'm, I'll post a link to that website on, my, on the write-up to the podcast so that people can just click on it and, and, and find you. Because Wonderful. part of what we do here as well is, um, I think another part of, 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 you asked me earlier, why did I do this podcast? Is to break stigma. 
to break the stigma around drug addiction, around depression, anxiety, HIV, um, all, all these things that that, that so stigmatize so quickly. Is let's talk about it freely, because I just feel it, it, if addiction talk was was what was dinner table talk when I realized I needed help, I would have found help far quicker than I did. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you um, because you know with stigma you get the core emotion to stigma shame right mm-hmm. unless we start diluting the shame then more more and more people are going to continue dying yeah. from addiction and, and mental health absolutely actually, absolutely yeah. so for that, a good job Freddie. for that a reason additionally i am even more grateful and i'm wishing you a most beautiful friday afternoon and long weekend Again, again, and again, I leave this church with a sense of awe about the most fantabulous and interesting people on this planet. Mike Strat again made me feel so grateful to be alive and able to connect with such wonderful and beautiful people. I especially appreciate Mike's vulnerability and the work he does to address the stigma associated with sexuality, HIV, and men's health in general. I wish him a practice bulging at the seams. I especially appreciate Mike's vulnerability and work he does to address the stigma associated with addiction, sexuality, HIV, mental health, and men's health in general. I wish him a practice of bulging at the seams. If you want to know more about what I do, please feel free to connect with me on my website, which is www.freddy.org.za, or find me at Facebook at either Meet Me in the Field or Freddy Counselor, or on Twitter at, at Freddy or Instagram at Freddie Counselor. Remember that Freddie is always spelt with an I-E at the end. Thank you for listening. Be safe. Bye.